I'm going to pray here in a second, but before I do, uh, if you are unfamiliar with Christian tradition, you've happened to land on church today on what Christians call Palm Sunday. It's where we celebrate Jesus Christ riding into Jerusalem. And the crowds were initially very, very confused about why Jesus was riding into Jerusalem. Like, is he a king? Is he a conqueror? Is he the long-awaited Messiah? I mean, who is this guy? And why are people putting palm leaves out in front of him? I mean, they do that for coming dignitaries. Why Jesus? Who precisely is this guy and what's so special about him? Many in the crowds were wondering that. And we're going to answer these things and even more today. So hang on to your pew. We're going for a ride. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we're indeed excited about what you're doing here at our church, that God, you've allowed us to carry on your great commission, which is to win people to Christ, build them up in their faith, and then send them back out into culture throughout the whole world, being winners and builders themselves. And so, Father, as we look to do uh, even another campus here at our church, we're very excited about how you've guided us so far with uh, bringing Rick our way and the, the wonderful pastor he is and for Pat's excitement with this and, uh, Lord, the core group that have already committed to uh, winning, building, and sending uh, about 15, 20 minutes away from here. So we pray, God, that you continue to guide us and bless us as we uh, go about following you uh, deeper into Phoenix and Scottsdale. Father, we uh, pray as we open your book right now that you'd speak to our hearts and our minds. We love you. We want to know more about you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, Marg, you mentioned the props behind me. I want to ask you a question. And the question is simply this, that when life gets most hard for you, and you all know what I mean by that because it's personal to each one of us, what do you do and where do you go? When things are the most difficult for you, when you're at, your, at the end of your rope, when you're tying that proverbial knot and hanging on, where do you go for help? None of us are an island. All of us go somewhere. We turn to something when life gets hard. You know, one of the amazing things about American culture is that we are clearly one of the most, if not the most, resourced culture in the entire world today and in the entire history of the world. We have more places to run to, to go to, when life gets hard. And that's what I want you to think about. Where in American culture do you run to? So that's what these props are about. Uh, some of you are going to laugh at this, but it's true. I'm going to show you this in a second. Some of us run to the refrigerator when life gets really hard. We do. We just run to food because food is one of those great calmers, one of those great fillers in our life. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, there was a study done in 2008, and they found out that the average American spends about 67 minutes a day eating food as a primary activity. And they found further that the average American spends about 23.5 minutes a day eating food as a secondary activity while in front of the TV or computer or something like that. That seems pretty normal. Most astonishing was that they found that an average of 11% of Americans, that's more than 1 in 10, report, they self-report that they eat food as a primary and secondary activity more than four and a half hours a day. And some of you are going, that's me, more than four and a half hours a day, which means I did the math, that's about 25 to 30 percent of your waking hours you're involved in the refrigerator. Food is a comfort. It's something that some of us run to. I know some folks that as soon as they get done with breakfast, they're thinking about 
lunch. As soon as they're done with lunch, they're thinking about dinner. As soon as they're done with dinner, they're thinking about the next day. And so we tend to be obsessed on food in our culture. Just own that today. Maybe that's a place you run to. We're going to help you make sense of that. You'll notice the second prop here symbolizes material things, in this case, shoes. Now, ladies, we're going to have some fun with this. I think that it would be a safe bet to say that some of us run to things when life gets stressful, right? That's why we have Fashion Square, Kierlin's, Catalogs, Craigslist, so that we can run to things when things get difficult. This is a true fact. America last year spent $50.7 billion on shoes. That's a lot of shoes. I think that might arguably even be more shoes than we need when it comes to our life. And yet some of us just run to the next thing when life gets really hard. Our country spent $256 billion on clothes. We spent $53 billion on jewelry and watches. We spent $97 billion on cars. But we spend a lot of money on things in this culture, and it's not just because we need them. Let's own it this morning. It's because it gives us comfort. It gives us security. We run to these things when life gets really hard. Uh, Some of us run to work uh, when life gets hard. We we don't run to the fridge. We don't need more things, but we want to work harder. Work tends to be the great number of pain for some of us. In fact, the American Psychological Association did a study a few years ago in which they found that the average American bread earner now is working an average of 50 hours a week, which is an all-time high 8% longer than our parents did just one generation before. And so there's many of us who tend to, when stress hits us, we just work harder. We just put our hand to the till and we just start pushing and working because it gets our mind off. It distracts us. That we need to own that this morning, that when life gets hard, when all else fails, we tend to want to work. And then obviously, many of us run to entertainment and to amusement when life gets hard. That, that's just hands down the American thing to do. Go to the next TV, get more time on the internet, go to a movie, go to a sport. But we tend to use entertainment as a medium for going to, especially when life gets stressful. Even the word we use gives us away. This is fascinating. The word amusement comes from the word muse, which means to think or ponder. And when you put an A in front of the word, like asexual or amoral, it means the opposite of it. So if you're an amoral person, you're not a moral person. If an animal reproduces asexually, they don't reproduce in a a normal sexual way. So when you put the word A in front of amusement, it means to not think. It means to not ponder. It means you want to shut down. It means you don't want to have to deal with the stress of what you're dealing with today. And we use amusement in today's culture, NCIS, there you go, to do that today. That's what we do. And then you'll notice that some of us run to therapy or self-help. Now, you guys know me. I'm a big fan of counseling. I've been helped by counseling, which is obvious, and I've dealt with that in my life. And we have a counseling center at our church with three full-time staff, professional counselors. So I'm a big fan of that stuff. 
And yet, did you know that there are over 800 different support groups in the United States today? 800. There is a support group for everything you can think of, uh, from people who struggle with alcohol to people with rebellious cats. You think I'm kidding. Uh, there are support groups for cancer survivors and for people with hair loss. There are support groups for people who are going through grief and bereavement for, to people who are struggling with vegetarianism. I mean, there are support groups for every possible thing you could think of. Why? It's indicative of our culture. We are support group junkies. When life gets hard, when things get difficult, we go to the therapy or self-help movement. Identify which of this is for you. It's going to be helpful for you. And then lastly, just to be fair, some of us run to religion and spirituality, don't we? We do. I mean, religion and spirituality are still big in our culture today, whether it be New Age philosophy or Eastern religions or even an MTV form of spirituality. Or for us Christians, it might be that when life gets hard, we just overdose on Bible studies and things like that, or we serve more. We use these activities as a place to numb our pain, to get our mind off of things. What is it for you? So many places to run. Where do you tend to go when life is most difficult? It's going to be a good thing for you to identify this morning because here's the deal. As I mentioned earlier, today is Palm Sunday when 2,000 years ago Jesus rode into Jerusalem for the final week of his life. We celebrate it and call it Palm Sunday because of the palms that they put down in front of Jesus. And about 30 years after this event, as Paul the Apostle, who wrote about half the New Testament, was writing to his young protege, Timothy, he was commenting on the absolute centrality and importance of Jesus, who rode into town on this Palm Sunday. And he was writing to Timothy, and by extension to you and me, about why and what it is about Jesus that makes him so important as the first place to run to, that's why we put the cross there, when it comes to all the choices that we have today. So let me read one passage for you today. And we're going to park in front of this passage today. I think you're going to like it. It's not the usual passage that you get on Palm Sunday, but it's a hand-in-glove fit for what we're talking about here today. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8-13. through 13. So if you brought a Bible, open up there. We're going to stay here today, 2 Timothy 2, beginning at verse 8. If you didn't bring a Bible, then look up here on the screen. Of course, we'll have the Scripture for you. Paul says, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The offspring of David is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the Word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, we're, we're going to unpack all of this here today in, in the 25 minutes that we have remaining, but notice with me how this begins because I love this and it says it all and it just forever tells us where we should run when it says, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. That word remember there in the original Greek language that the New Testament was originally written in is the Greek word mamanuo, 
where we get our English word mnemonics from. And some of you know that mnemonics is the art or science of how to memorize things, how to picture them and repeat them over and over in your mind and help them stay in your memory. And, and so with that understanding, what Paul is saying here in 2 Timothy is that what I'm ever about to tell you right after this, keep in your mind. Remember this. Don't forget it. Write it to the hard drive of your mind. It's that important. And who or what are we to remember? Jesus Christ. Very interesting. Not Christianity, not the institution of the church, not all the Bible verses that we memorized in the early days of our discipleship, not all the practical how-to tips that you hear on Christian radio on how to live the Christian life, though all of these things are good and right in and of themselves. But when the rubber meets the road, when all else is said and done, Paul says if you forget anything else, don't forget Jesus Christ, the man, the person, your Lord, your Savior. He is the heart of it all. Paul is saying in the midst of all of your hardships, and this letter, as we'll see in a second here, was written in the midst of hardships, remember Jesus the person of Jesus. You know, it's interesting, even the old-time academic commentators of the Bible who usually don't get these more personal, practical nuances of the word, they're just kind of giving you rote things, pick up on this one. E.W. Vine says it this way. Look up here on the screen. He says the injunction is to remember the person himself, the risen, living one who became a man. Let it be engraved on our minds and our hearts. No better motto could be given to us. And so where should you and I go first when things get difficult in our lives? I don't think the Scripture is being unclear here. Jesus Christ. Before we run to the fridge or work or shoes or things or even therapy and self-help or even religion and spirituality itself, the Bible says remember Jesus Christ. Now, if you're dialing into that at all this morning, and hopefully we all are, the question that we should be asking that I think every seeker and believer would ask today is why Jesus? I mean, what is it so important about this guy who rode into town that Paul the Apostle in his dying letter here would say to remember Jesus? What is so helpful, attractive, inviting, and even substantive uh, in our time of greatest need about Jesus? Because let's be honest, it can almost be a trite, if not banal thing to say to somebody when they're really hurting, well, I hope you're remembering Jesus, right? I mean, think about that. If the takeaway from this message is that you go out this week and tell every hurting person in your life, well, I hope you remember Jesus, I mean, that can come across as an awfully trite thing to those around us. And yet, when you look close, that is precisely what Paul the Apostle is saying to Timothy here. Paul is in jail. This is the last letter he's ever going to write. He's being persecuted on the outside, abandoned by friends. He's hurting on the inside. He's writing to this young upstart Timothy saying, man, just keep the faith, keep walking the walk. And what does he say when Timothy's also struggling in his life? He says, remember Jesus Christ. And so the question I have is what is it that would cause Paul to say this with such confidence and conviction and no triteness involved at all. In our time remaining, I want to share with you five things that come right out of this text. Again, we are Scottsdale Bible Church. We follow the flow of the text here. Uh, five things it tells us as to why Jesus Christ and what it is about Him on this Palm Sunday that's so important. And here's the first thing Paul says, and that is because He is rooted 
in history and truth. This is all some of you need to hear today. He is rooted in history and truth. And so in order to give us confidence in coming to Jesus as the only one who can really help us now in our lives and to make sure that we know that in coming to him, this isn't a fanciful dream or some wish fulfillment as some might suggest, but that he is real and is really here for us today. Look at what Paul says in verse 8. He says Jesus is risen from the dead and that he's the offspring of David. He is risen from the dead and the offspring of David. And then he goes on to say in verse 9 that, that both of these things are contained in the Word of God, the Bible, which is not in chains like Paul himself is in chains, but is free and active, giving people assurance of the truth all the time. This is some of you need to hear today in the midst even of your struggles. You need to be reminded this morning of this precise point that the Bible contains reliable, historical, valid information about Jesus. I've said this to you before, but one of the things that drives me nuts about this time of year is that the History Channel and PBS and even places like ABC are going to run specials in which they have a small minority, you look close, it's just like three or four different liberal scholars who are all going to cast subtle doubt on the historicity of the Bible. And as a guy who's seminary trained and even has studied this stuff since seminary the last 20 years, it just drives me batty that when I, one, realize that these guys who are talking are not representative at all of the vast majority of scholars out there today and certainly not representative of the best information we have about the historicity of our Christian faith. So did you know, for instance, that we have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the Bible ranging from as early as 125 A.D., just 30 to 35 years after the death of John, the last author of the Bible. And some of you say, wow, I mean like there's a 30 to 35-year lag between when the Bible was actually written to the copies that we have of it today? Well, yeah, <clears throat> but compare that to Aristotle or Plato or Socrates and we only have a few copies, nowhere near 5,000 of their original writings, and the ones of Aristotle date a thousand years after he lived and lived and wrote. And no one doubts that Aristotle existed, no one doubts that he said what he said. It's just as if I've said for years, if you throw out Jesus, then you've got to throw out Anthony and Cleopatra, Caesar, and any other prominent figure at that time, because we have more evidence of Jesus and what he said than any of those guys. As if this were not enough, on an archaeological level, which by the way is the acid test for any historical document, does it collate with the archaeological evidence of that day, the Bible and the gospel accounts have never once proven to be false or inaccurate. Not once. Nelson Gluck, a renowned Jewish archaeologist and president in the 20th century for a long time of Hebrew Union College, says it this way. Look up here on the screen. He says it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. And he's right. Again, despite what you hear, listen closely, because all they're doing is casting doubt on these things, and they're using things like the Gnostic Gospels from the 2nd century and documents that are very distant from the time of the New Testament. The reality is that we have no firm archaeological evidence at all that the things in the New Testament did not take place. They did take place. The Bible is an accurate, historically reliable document that you and I can have confidence in. 
And so here's the point. When it comes to coming to Jesus with all that we are and all that we're going through on a daily level, what Paul is saying to Timothy here is that he's a descendant of David. He's rooted in history, the result of prophetic promise. And he's risen from the dead, alive today, waiting and willing to help you because he's real and your faith is real. Christmas really happened. He was born. Palm Sunday really happened. He rode into Jerusalem. Holy Week, complete with Good Friday and Easter, really happened. He went to a cross for your sins and he was resurrected on the third day. God came for you. And the point is, is he's still with you today in the midst of all that you're going through, even in the midst of all the other things that we tend to run to. Your faith in Jesus is rock solid, rooted in history and truth. And now, with this understanding, notice that Paul goes on to give us a second, even more powerful reason to remember Jesus at all times, and especially in times of trouble, and that is that he is the only hope of this world and the next. He's the only hope at the end of the day that you and I have. Now, to understand this, I want you guys to think with me of all the things that our culture today tells us to put hope in. Not bad things, but just think of all the things that it tells us to put hope in. It tells us to put hope in politics, economics, sociology, psychology, education, societal engineering. Again, all good and proper things in and of themselves. I'm going to have three kids in college next year. You can pray for Kim and I in that. And and my kids are studying things like education and business. My son's going to study physics. And we're very, very happy for what they're doing and proud of them. But the reality is, is as good as all of those things are, what the Bible is saying here is that none of them and none of these things that you and I run to today can be our ultimate hope either for this life or the one to come. All of it is going to disappoint us whether it be big societal things like politics or even small things like your refrigerator. None of them are going to ease the the hole in your soul. Only Jesus and his cross, his forgiveness, can do that. And so notice very quickly two ways the text tells us this. Look at verse 10. Paul says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You know, it's fascinating. In almost every other instance that Paul uses that word elect, he uses it to talk about those who are already saved, who have already come to Christ, and therefore have been chosen by God. But this is one of the few instances where he uses the word elect to refer to those who have not come to Christ yet. Isn't that interesting? And we know that because he says that they may obtain the salvation, the future salvation, that is in Christ Jesus So so basically, as one commentator says, it would be no paradise for Paul to be in paradise alone. And so the reality is what Paul is saying here is that Christ is our hope for eternal life. And even for those who have not yet come to Christ, he is the hope of their lives. And then as you're hanging on to that, look at what he says in verse 11 as he now goes on to talk about a saying that had been going on at that time 2,000 years ago. He says in verse 11, the saying is trustworthy. Now, I'm saying, what's that about? You know, today we have bumper stickers, right, on our cars in which we put little sayings on there. When I first became a Christian, I had a, a bumper sticker on my truck that said, Christian retirement benefits are out of this world. And I thought that was kind of cute. 
And uh, I, I don't know where, what happened to it. I sold the truck. The guy probably ripped it off. But I thought it was great for at least when I had it. And so we call that bumper sticker theology, little sayings that we come up with to help us remember Christian truths. Believe it or not, in the first century, they had the same thing. And so what Paul is referring here is our best guess is a saying that they had back then that's very poetic. It was four statements that he will go on to give that follow an if and then pattern. So if this is true, then this is also true about your life. And look at what he does. It says that he gives us line one in verse 11 of this saying. He says, if we have died with him, then we will also live with him. That was a saying they had back then. If we've died with him, then we will also live with him. Now, what does that mean? Well, Romans 6 tells us that if we have died with Christ, it means that we've come to believe in him and we have given our life over to him. And just as he died for our sins, we have now given up the rights to our life, come into the kingdom of God, and he is now our leader and our forgiver, our Lord and our Savior. And so Paul is referring here to salvation. And he's saying if we have come to faith in Christ, then you now have hope as you live for him, with him, and even in the next world. And when you mix this, folks, with the statement that he just made about how he endures for the elect, for those who are even not yet come to Christ, you can see that what Paul is saying is, is that Jesus is our hope. That if we have come to place our faith in Christ for eternal life, then we need to realize, even today as we celebrate Palm Sunday, that he indeed is the author of our salvation. He's the sovereign one who will never lead us, leave us. He's the one who has bought for us eternal life. And though we're tempted to put our hope in so many other things, like a refrigerator, or a new pair of shoes, or more work, or the next TV show, or, or even a self-help Bible, uh, or a Bible study, as we're tempted to put our hope in so many other things, or even big picture things like politics and economics and societal engineering, Paul is begging us here, make your first hope, make your first priority to remember Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can fill that hole in your soul. He's the only one that can forgive you and bring you to God, and he's the only one that we should run to. And so this Jesus who rode into Jerusalem is rooted in history and reality. That's why we run to him. He's the primary source of our hope. And then our passage before us goes on to give us a third reason for remembering Jesus in the midst of hardship and trouble, and this one's motivating, and that is that he will someday give me a great reward, and you too, for staying faithful. He will give great reward for staying faithful. So notice with me what 2 Timothy 2 says next in this saying or statement in verse 12. This is lines 2 and 3 of this bumper sticker saying. He says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Now, this is kind of ominous, isn't it? Uh, you can hear a pin drop in here right now. And some of you are saying, wait a second, Jamie, you're sounding all positive about this, but it just said that if we endure, we'll reign with him, and if we deny him, he will deny us. What's that about? Well, let's unpack this so we clearly understand this. First, notice the first saying, if we endure, we will also reign with him. 
Paul is switching gears here from talking about salvation to now talking about rewards. He's saying if after you have become a Christian, you stay faithful, stay to the course, stay in the ring with Jesus, and continue to follow him, then when you die and go to be with him in glory, there's going to be a reward with him, and it's reigning with him in heaven. Other Bible verses talk about that doesn't give us a lot of detail. It just says that God rewards faithfulness this side of heaven. That's different than earning your salvation because only Jesus can earn your salvation. This is talking about as a Christian, what you do now through faith in God and in the power of the Holy Spirit matters because it will be rewarded. And the scriptures affirm that. But then notice, he says then, secondly there, he says, and if we deny him, he will also deny us. And we're saying, what does that mean? There's two options. And I'm guessing if you've been around the Christian block more than once, you've heard both these options. The first option is that this could be referring to loss of salvation or proof that you never had it in the first place. And I see Christians do this all the time. You know, somebody would be struggling in their faith. I mean, they came to Christ, clearly came to Christ. Steve, you know, you came to Christ, you're walking with God. Then you go through a really difficult time. And going through a difficult time, Christians can get kind of zany in that process and, and start to struggle in their life. And so Steve's struggling in his faith, and somebody will come along and say, well, gosh, I have empathy on you, but I, I sure hope that you come back to Jesus. Because, you know, if you don't, then ee, I don't really know what we can say about your eternal destiny because if you don't come back to Jesus, then maybe you're never saved in the first place or even worse, you've lost your salvation. Some interpret this passage as saying that, that if we deny him, he's going to deny us. But I don't think that's what this is saying, folks. Uh, the majority of commentators and scholars opt for another more plausible interpretation, and it is this. It's saying that if we turn our back on Christ and go through difficult times, it will drastically affect our reward. Again, we're not in a salvific context here, but a continuation of Paul's discussion of reward. So we're still going to be in eternity with him. That's going to be our next point. He'll make that very clear with all of its glory. But like the believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul says they were saved as ones narrowly escaping the flames... A lot of what they did here on earth kind of got burned up because it wasn't done in the power of the Spirit. They didn't live a very faithful life. And the reason that I believe this has to be referring to the whole rewards thing here is that it fits the context as we've already seen. As well, that word deny there, it says if we deny him, is the exact same word used to describe Peter when he denied Jesus. And let me ask you, when Peter denied Jesus, would you have looked at him and said, well, guess what? Hell is your future. You know, you're not saved anymore. I mean, no, they, they, Jesus didn't even say that to Peter. He, he said, how can I restore you? How can I help you recover from this failure that you've just gone through in your life? Jesus had a move of grace and compassion and affirmation upon Peter. And again, there's too many other passages in the Bible that tell you and me, once we're saved, we're always saved. It's bound up in heaven, secured one sheep strays from Jesus' fold, he runs after it till he gets that sheep back. And so the call here is to remember Jesus Christ. He's the one we should be running to all the time and even run to in such a way that we will remember that we're rewarded for our faithfulness. This is the third reason that he gives here. And then more quickly, because we're running out of time here, notice that 2 Timothy 2 gives us a fourth reason to run to Jesus. And I love this one. 
And it kind of helps cement what we just talked about, and that is because he gives you and me great security now. In other words, Jesus is the most secure place you and I can run to. Look at verse 13. If you had any doubt on what I just said about verse 11, whether it was true or not, look at what Paul or verse 12. Look at what Paul says in verse 13. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Fascinating. Using the same word deny as before, but now adding a new word faithless, which by the way is a brutal word. That word faithless is the word apistuo in the original Greek language. Remember what we said when you put an A in front of a word, it means the opposite? Pistuo means faith. Pistuo means belief. So Paul's saying when you have no faith, no belief, when you're so hurting that you just can't see any more in the future and you can't believe that God is still with you and you're struggling in your life, when all else fails, he's saying he remains faithful to you. Doesn't that move you? He remains faithful to you. And do you know why he remains faithful? Because he won't deny himself. He has promised to never leave you or forsake you. He has promised that when you have come to believe in him and trust in him, he will never let go. He has promised to be the father in the story of the prodigal son, waiting for that son to come home. Chuck Swindoll calls this the scandal of grace. He says this is an aspect of God's grace that when you finally get it, you say to yourself, no way! It just can't be this good! And Chuck Swindoll says, now you get it. Now you get it. You understand the reckless, ruthless love that God has loved you with and saved you with that even when you are faithless, he remains faithful to you because he's not going to deny himself. And his love for you is rooted in his love for you, not in anything you have done. It's a great security that you and I have. So here's the deal. Some of you came in here really beat up today. I mean, you barely made it to church. You're like, I don't want to go to church today. They're going to make me feel guilty for something. That's not going to happen today. We're saving that for two weeks from now. So we're not doing that today. <laughs> Won't do it on Easter either. But the reality is, is that you need to know today, no matter how beat up you are, God loves you. He died for you. He sent his son for you. He rode into town. And he never leaves you or forsakes you. He is faithful. And then lastly, in a very intimate way, uh, what Paul communicates to us is that he, Jesus, is yours. He's yours. Let's go back to the beginning of this passage here. Look at verse 8. Paul says something here that he only says in two other times in all of his writings. And it's a very intimate phrase he uses. He says in verse 8 there, as preached in my gospel. My gospel. In almost all the other contexts, Paul the Apostle says as preached in the gospel. Uh, he always uses the the. But, but here, in this very personal letter here, talking about remembering Jesus Christ, he refers to Jesus and his gospel as my gospel. Uh, this is Paul saying, this isn't a religion. This isn't a church. Uh, this isn't an institution. This is Jesus I'm talking about. And he's my Jesus. So why should we remember Jesus Christ, run to him always? Because he's your Savior, your friend, your God. Ultimately, he's all you have, and he is yours. And so back to our original question. What are you relying on most, especially when things get tough? As we go into Holy Week, as Margie mentioned earlier here today, we're going to celebrate Good Friday. We're going to have a blast on Easter Sunday. But I want you to remember why Jesus 
is the man who wrote in Jerusalem. He wrote into Jerusalem because he's rooted in truth and history. He's your only hope and the one who forgives you of your sin. He rewards faithfulness. He gives you great security now. And he's yours. And if you choose him, he's yours for eternity. I want to close with one illustration. Hopefully the PowerPoint guys can follow me on this because I'm out of order here, but I want to close with this because I think this is powerful. Most people don't know this. The media probably won't report on this, but this month is the 13th anniversary of something that was on everybody's radar 13 years ago. It was the Columbine Massacre. It was 13 years ago this month that two students, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, walked into their high school and opened fire on some of their fellow students. And shortly after this massacre that caught national attention, Chuck Colson, who's a, arguably a national spokesman for evangelical Christianity, wrote in his Breakpoint column some powerful things helping us make sense of what was going on that week. Uh, whether these guys knew what they were doing or not, they, they actually did target Christians that day. They had a real beef against anybody who was a person of faith, these two deranged students. And so one of the things they did is target their fellow students that were believers in God and even believers in Jesus. One of the kids that was killed that day was a young 17-year-old by the name of Cassie Bernal. Cassie was in the library that day reading her Bible, of all things, when these two young killers burst in. And according to the witnesses that were there, one of the killers pointed the gun right at Cassie and asked her, do you believe in God? Without even blinking, Cassie said, yes, I believe in God. And he looked at her and he said, why? And before she would even answer, he shot her dead right there. Uh, that night on uh, Larry King on CNN, one of the classmates said this, and I quote, she said she completely stood up for God. When the killers asked her if there was anybody who had faith in Christ, she spoke up and they shot her for it. And she became what you might call a modern-day martyr. In fact, Colson called this article the Littleton Martyrs because it was in Littleton, Colorado. Probably one of the most meaningful things that came out of Cassie's death, and her parents still have a website to this day that you can go to in her memory, is that her mom had found her journal, and two days earlier, she had written in her journal about a huge decision that she had made in her faith in Christ. I mean, very mature for a 17-year-old. This is what she wrote two days before she was gunned down at, at Columbine in her journal. Look what she wrote. Look up here on the screen. She says, now... I have given up on everything else. I have found it to be the only way to really know Christ and to experience the mighty power that brought him back to life again and to find out what it means to suffer and to die with him. So whatever it takes, I will be one who lives in the fresh newness of life of those who are alive from the dead. Wow. Cassie Bernal, at the age of 17, chose not to choose religion or self-help or entertainment or work or shoes or fridge as the thing to run to first. She chose, by her own words, Jesus. And he became her security. He became her confidence. And she lives now eternally with him in everlasting bliss. Great reward. For her faithfulness to him and as you and i go into this holy week let's ask ourselves a question what's really taking priority in our lives what is it that we're really prioritizing when it comes to our faith 
I don't care whether you're a seeker or a believer here today. If you're a believer, you know what I'm talking about. If you're a seeker, today is the day that you need to seek and look to Jesus as the only one amidst all your options that can be the one to save you and give you what you're looking for. And so let's pray. Father, I thank you that your scriptures come along and on a week where Christians have been now celebrating in lots of different traditions this week for 2,000 years, your scriptures make it really clear what it's about. And that's all about Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, in the midst of all the things that we have in our country here, from all the props that hold us up to even some 350,000 different churches that have gotten into all kinds of things, Lord, we want to simplify things today and focus on your Son. And God, I pray that for those of us who are believers in your Son, Jesus, that today just might be a, a real encouragement that no matter where we might be in our walk with you, that you're with us, you're faithful, you're good, and that there's always hope, always encouragement. May that cause us to submit and lay down our lives before you. And Father, if there be somebody here seeking you today that's not yet quite convinced of, of the Christian truth claim, of the truth about your Son, may today even be a light going on in their head as they realize he is rooted in history, their only hope, who gives great security, rewards faithfulness, and it can be ours. So God, thank you for our time today. We pray that as we go through this week that we'd be ever mindful of what happened 2,000 years ago, uh, realizing that we have a new lease on life because of this Jesus who came for us. And it's in his name that we pray. And we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you, and we'll see you on Easter.